We are in the midst of this series on the prophet Elijah. We have this week and next week to go. I'll tell you that uh, this summer we're going to have a fun time. We're going to walk through the Psalms together this summer. And so I'm looking forward to that starting the first week of June. Uh, just to kind of make you realize how quickly things are flying at us. Uh, Sumner County schools end this week, like Tuesday, right? Uh, other schools are having graduations happening Two weeks from today is the Sunday before Vacation Bible School. Vacation Bible School starts two weeks from tomorrow. Uh, only say that when Jeanetta's not in the room because that's one of those things that freaks out people. You know, like it's coming. Um, our kids actually leave for camp. Our youth actually leave for camp next Monday. Uh, and so a week from tomorrow they leave for camp. So things are going to start happening pretty rapidly around here. And as we are finishing up the this year, moving into summer, the spring moving into summer, we're going to finish up this series over the next two weeks. And just a quick reminder of where we are. Last week, we saw Elijah in what is his greatest moment as a prophet when he defeated the prophets of Baal in one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. He calls fire from heaven, fire destroys everything, and then he has all of the prophets of Baal chased down and killed, right? He kills them all. And in that moment, the question then kind of comes in life after a big moment in our lives, a big victory in our lives, what's next? What happens then? Well, immediately following that, good things happen for the prophet Elijah. In fact, if we pick up exactly where we were at the end of last week, it tells us in 1 Kings chapter 18, that Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. And so what's happening here is that he says, go up, eat and drink for the sound of a rainstorm. Now, let's just think about this for just a moment, all right? If you remember, if you remember what was going on in the beginning of Elijah's ministry, we were introduced to Elijah rather abruptly. That happened a few weeks ago as we talked about this. It would have been a few months, years ago, according to Elijah. But do you remember the scene where he stepped onto the scene for everybody to see? He goes into the king, and what does he tell the king? He tells the king what? That it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And so the first introduction we have of Elijah over in chapter 17 is literally him saying it's not going to rain. And then we talked about God took him through a preparation period of of going out into the desert and being fed by the ravens of the brook that was there. And then to the widow who would provide for him during that time. And then he goes to his big confrontation on Mount Carmel. And as he proves that God is the one true God, that Yahweh is the one true God, what then happens is he says... Now it's going to rain. Tell Ahab that it's about to rain. Verse 42 says, So Ahab went to eat and drink. But Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. Seven times Elijah says, Go back. And on the seventh time he reported, There's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. Then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so that the train doesn't stop, so the rain doesn't stop you. 
He says, it's about to rain, and it's going to rain in a downpour. Verse 45. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. So Ahab got into his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah, and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So immediately following the big victory on Mount Carmel comes another big victory in that Elijah had said, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And then he says, it's going to rain, and the rain comes. This is the conclusion, it would seem, of his ministry. This is what he was sent to do to the king. Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. Ahab, it's going to rain, and the rain comes, and it is there. What expects it is to come next is a happy ending, a joyful celebration, a let's give praise to God, Yahweh, who is the Lord, and to Elijah, his prophet. There should be confetti falling. There should be a Hollywood ending. Y'all know what those are, right? I don't know if you know this, but it's become a little passe to have a Hollywood ending. Cliché. Movies today are looking for more realism. There are even those movies in recent years that have kind of left the, the conclusion to the mind of the watcher. Letting us think about whether or not this is the good or the bad. A couple of examples that you may or may not have seen. There was a movie called Life of Pi that at the end you don't know what's reality and real. And it's determined in your mind what you think. Or one of my favorite movies of all time, a movie named Inception, where at the end of it, it is left in the air whether he is in reality or a dream. The Hollywood ending is old school. It was fine, but not anymore. It's even made fun of these days. People talk about the Disney formula of a movie with a happy ending. They lived happily ever after. That's what would be nice here, right? And Elijah rode off into the sunset, retired in a nice house provided to him by the king as rain had returned to the land. But that is not what happened. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, Ahab told Jezebel. Y'all remember Jezebel, right? Everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now my guess is, I don't know, this is is speculation, and so this isn't biblical gospel truth, all right? But my guess is that he gets back and Jezebel's like, what happened? It's raining. That's awesome. That's great. He's like, oh yeah, it's raining. It's awesome. It's great. It's all because of Elijah. Because of, because of who? And what, what happened? Well, there was this big showdown. And what, what happened to my prophets? You ever, you ever given somebody good news and they know how to find the dark cloud and the silver lining? You ever done that? Man, you're not going to believe the great... Really, is that what happened? What, what else happened? Is that, the, is that the whole story? Did you ever think about? Not that I've had personal experience. I'm just saying that that's a possibility. And Jezebel says, that ain't going to work. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. And I imagine again, you're Elijah. You think the ticker tape parade is coming tomorrow. 
They're going to march me through the city and people are going to rejoice. We're going to set up the altars of God back to where they were. We're going to worship Yahweh. The victory is complete. The country has been set right. It is all back to revival in the land. Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me. Notice, not the God, the gods. My gods. Punish me and do severely if I do not make your life like the one of them by this time tomorrow. She says, I've got 24 hours to kill you. And if I don't kill you in 24 hours, the gods can do whatever they want with me. Because your head needs to be on a platter to me by this time tomorrow. And we're talking about Elijah. The guy that should be, look, bring it. He's just the guy that stood up to 900 plus prophets of Baal and Asherah and said to them, what's wrong with your God? Is he indisposed at the moment? Is he going to the restroom? Did he take a vacation? Is he sleeping? This is a guy who has been unafraid of almost anything that has come his way. And yet in this moment, that is not the response that Elijah has. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. That's a quick turn, isn't it? Within 24 hours, Isaiah, I mean Isaiah, Elijah has gone from the top of the mountain literally to a wilderness living and sleeping under a broom tree where he's asking God to take his life. So what got him there? One of the things that gets a lot of people there, I mean, this is kind of how it happens in life sometimes, right after one of our greatest victories, our biggest moments, that in that moment it seems that we're ripe for, set up for a moment of despair or depression or something bad happening. You start to serve the Lord in one area and then you find out that another area of your life is going to fall apart. Or you get through with a project you've been working on. You get through with something you've been really building towards, a vision you've had for your life or for your career or for your family or for your school. And you get through with that and then the next day everything falls apart and more stuff gets put on your plate. It seems like just as you get to the place where God has won victories in your life, you're asking the question, when does the other shoe drop. What we see here really is this progression that happens in the life of Elijah where he goes from a place of great victory and within 24 hours is in a place of destructive thoughts. He becomes disappointed in the fact that the revival that he thought would happen, the the setting right of all things God that would happen, doesn't. We'll find that out in a minute when he talks to the Lord. He's disappointed about what's happening. And as he dwells on that disappointment, he becomes discouraged. Well, if that didn't work, if beating their prophets in that kind of showdown doesn't work, what is? And before long, he goes from a place of disappointment and discouragement to depression. Now, let me just say real quickly, we're going to talk about the word depression today. We're going to talk about um, 
despair and even destructive thoughts. And I just want to say real clearly from the beginning that I, I am not speaking about all cases and all places of all diagnosis of that word. That word is a very loaded word. I have had one class in seminary about helping people through difficult times. That does not make me qualified to be a licensed counselor. And there are some people that deal with medically diagnosed and very real cases of depression. And so what I'm offering today, what we're talking about today in the life of Elijah, is not a one-size-fits-all. But I do want us to focus on how he got there and maybe some ways God can help us when we find ourselves moving in that direction. He goes from this depression to a place of despair. It's never going to get better. Nothing's ever going to change. I don't know how this could turn out for good. And he eventually lands in a place of destructive faults. God, just go ahead and take my life. You see how, how quickly we could all go from those, in those kind of directions? From, man, I, I really thought this was it. I really thought that's what was going on. And man... That didn't happen, and I don't know if it's ever going to happen. And man, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. And I feel really horrible about this. I just don't see any way out. I don't see any way this could ever get any better in any circumstance. And I don't want to live through it. Oftentimes in our lives, the greatest temptation to be discouraged or depressed or to fall into despair come immediately after our greatest victories, our highest moments. We'll talk about why in just a moment. But it's true even in Scripture. We talk about the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus was a very real temptation by a very real enemy. And it was a devastatingly difficult moment in the ministry of Jesus. When does that come right after? The baptism of Jesus, where he comes out of the water and the Spirit descends like a dove and says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. One of the highest moments of his ministry. I've got a picture of a guy. I don't know if we can get that picture on screen. I know we're having a little bit of a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was considered to be the great prince of preachers. Um, he is one of the greatest preachers of all time. Priest in London, and Charles Spurgeon preached at a church that when he began to preach there, it just absolutely exploded. I mean, we're talking about London in the 1800s. He started drawing crowds of 10,000 to a church that had been running a few hundred. They had changed locations because things were so many people were coming, they had to go. They they talked about this concept that was fairly new called. Multi-site churches. But there were too many people on flip phones that didn't think that video would work. That's, that's a joke in, from the 1800s. And so they stayed in one location, but it became more and more crowded. And people, you would expect them to go, man, this is the God. Let's follow. Let's figure out what God's doing and follow. That's not what happened. They began to criticize him. I know that's hard to believe. They attacked him as a fundamentalist, as a cult leader, as a guy that was all about ego and himself. And people got really frustrated and really 
mad at Charles Spurgeon for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that one guy decided he was going to do something about it, and in one of the most crowded meetings that Spurgeon had, he ran in and yelled, Fire! Literally, a stampede occurred, and seven people died at one of Charles Spurgeon's services. Spurgeon had reached heights that no preacher in London ever had, that no preacher in modern times in that area had ever had. And yet, after that incident, he went into a deep state of depression. He was devastated by it. He fought his life. We, as a staff, a few years ago now, a couple of years ago, read a um, kind of a fictionalized biography of him. And it talks about the depression that he went through. So the question becomes, then why does it happen to us in the midst of those moments? We see a couple of reasons here with Elijah, just to be honest. First of all, the reality of spiritual warfare. Why does he get depressed? Because the enemy of God is coming after him. Jezebel was the enemy of God and she's going to come after him. And we have to recognize that when we are doing what God has called us to do and God is blessing and God is moving and God is working in our lives, then the enemy is going to attack in that moment. Can I tell you something, church? We have seen more baptisms in the last month and a half in this church than we have seen in years. That's praiseworthy. I heard a couple of rumbled amens. Can I guarantee you something? The enemy is not going to be happy with that. The way that happens in churches is either some sort of uh, of difficulty arises from the midst. A lot of times it just happens because people begin to become critical of one another and of the church and of what's happening around for whatever reason. Just like in Spurgeon say, they begin to throw things and shade and accusations and criticisms and people begin to infight and that's how the enemy works it. In our own personal lives, when we're on a spiritual high, we need to recognize that the enemy is coming for us because if he can get us to cool down a little bit, the effectiveness of what we're doing is lessened. There's more practical reasons here also. I mean, just the fact that at this moment, my guess is Elijah is physically exhausted. He has been all over the place and hiding, and he has missed some some food probably at this moment. He hasn't had the widow feeding him. He's been kind of traveling. He's had his mind on a mission. I don't know about you, but in my, my life, when I get focused on something that sometimes food and what's happening and my own personal kind of health kind of falls off to the side. Anybody here ever get really cranky and upset when you get physically exhausted? Anybody here have a spouse that gets cranky and upset? Maybe you shouldn't raise your hand on that. They may be. Anybody here get hangry? Yeah, they got some hangry people. I see Sloan. I see that hand. She's, she was enthusiastic about it. I, uh, most of you know that I'm insulin dependent diabetic, um, and um, over the last uh, several years, I've been on an insulin pump, and that helps out a whole lot, but. Um, for the first uh, 15 years of me being diabetic, I was on shots, two, three shots a day, and it was not as easily to control ups and downs. And uh, I, I, apparently, when my blood sugar gets low, I become emotional, either like weepy or like mean. Like those are the two things 
And this came out. We were at a Christian conference called Passion. Susan and I were dating. I was in college. We weren't married yet. And we were dating. And they had those things where, you know, they're feeding 12,000 college students. You went out in the hallway and you got a sandwich and the chips, you just, you just walk through the line and grab what you want. My blood sugar was going low at that moment. I began to feel it. But I did, it, like today, if it's going low, sometimes you'll hear things beeping and going off up here. And, like, I know the Yorks know what those alarms mean, but most of you don't. Like, my blood sugar's going high or low, that'll tell me up here. I didn't have any of that then, so I was just like, i got to eat. And I don't remember what it was over, but I think Susan offered me mustard for my sandwich. And I just looked at her and said, I don't want the mustard, okay? Somehow she still married me and we're okay, but there are people that it doesn't. So you can blame it on low blood sugar next time that happens in your house. It's what I do every time. I'm sorry, my blood sugar. She said, your your insulin says says it's about 120. Yeah, I know, it's low. Sometimes physical exhaustion Hunger causes our emotions and our feelings to change. There's another reason here I really think it's important for us to understand. Elijah's asking the same question that I asked at the beginning of this. What's next? I just filled my purpose up. And it didn't have the effect I thought. What's next? Maybe you've had that moment in your life with a career or with your family, and you think, once we get there, everything will be better. Once the kids get to this point, once we can be to that financially, once we reach that, everything will be good. And then you get that, and you're like, oh, there's still stuff. You reach that, and you're like, man, it's blindsided me again. And I think Elijah's just in the midst of that. He goes, if that didn't work, God, I don't have anything left. I am physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. The enemy is after me, and I have no purpose left. So what does God do? Look at verse 5 again of chapter 19. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged We belong there. He goes and he goes on the journey. He sits down under the broom tree, prays that he might die. He says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. And he lay there and slept. Second part of chapter 5, of, of verse 5. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. And then he looked and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat. On the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength from the food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets. With the ant sword, I am left alone. And they are looking for me to take my life. Elijah comes to this moment, and God says, I'm going to take care of you physically, emotionally, and spiritually before we start the work of what God is going to do. 
He literally sends an angel to attend to him. By the way, that in Scripture, angels are always on a errand, on a purpose. They're never just kind of wandering around, sitting around. God is directing them in a very specific way. And in this one, he goes and he cooks them a meal somehow, puts it out there. It's hot. It's fresh. By the way, I know it says here, loaf of kind of bread. That's not what the original language kind of says. The original language says a baked cake. It's not just like, it's not like stale bread. It's like good stuff. It's angel food cake. Literally. literally. All right. I don't know if he, I know. Okay. I don't know if there's strawberries and whipped cream, but that's what it is. All right. He eats. That hunger is satisfied. It refreshes him, has him rest again, eats again. God recognizes in those moments. Here's the thing that I found out. When I do something or when I find that I'm, I'm on a high for God or something really exciting happens, oftentimes it's not the day of or the day after all that happens that I really exhaust, get exhausted and crash. It's like the day after the day. Like some teachers in this room are going to experience that like this weekend. The day after the day. When I get back from Brazil, like that day I'm good. I wake up this morning, I'm good. And sometime around the afternoon or that first day that we're back, I'm like, whoa. Youth camp, center kid, like the day after the day. God says, you've got to rest. You've got to make your body. God then speaks to him, and he's going to correct some theological things, help him spiritually. God listens. I think that's an important moment for us to understand here. God doesn't need the answer to his question. Right? God knows why Elijah's there. He doesn't need, the, he doesn't need Elijah to go, well, let me explain something to you. And God goes, oh, really? I didn't didn't realize it. I'm sorry about that. He's asking him because he wants him to be able to vent and to share. Any of you have friends in your lives that just let you vent? And how emotionally rewarding that can be? God is working on him physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And then he takes him up. He puts him in a cave at Mount Horeb. By the way, another name for Mount Horeb, just so you know, is Mount Sinai. That might have a little more significance for you, where Moses received the covenant. Verse 11, God says, Then go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And at that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after when there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, covered up so that he would not be exposed to the glory of God. And went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah repeats his complaints. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. And then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are anoint Hazel as king. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Zephyr, over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abimelech as a prophet in your place. Then my plan will be fulfilled. The Whoever escapes will be put to death. And I have 7,000 in Israel. 7,000 that have not bowed to Baal 
that have not kissed his feet and that serve me. So what does all that mean? He gives him basically four things for us to take with us when we begin to feel ourselves spiraling into that moment of disappointment, becoming depression and despair. And the first thing is, basically, we need to trust the wisdom of God. That's not easy to see sometimes. It's not easy to do. Honestly, it's one of the most difficult things to do when in our lives everything seems to be falling apart and we think we know better and we think we know best and we don't understand and we're asking the why questions. In the midst of it all, we just trust in the wisdom of God. I love that God doesn't give him a direct answer to his questions, right? He was like, God, I've been zealous for you, okay? I've worked for you. I did this for you. The people have abandoned you. I didn't abandon you. I'm the only one left. And God doesn't go, oh, I just stop with that. He just says, listen, this is what I've got for you still left. Here's what's next. Trust me and do what I've called you to do. Second thing, we're going to go through this pretty quickly. Not only trust in the wisdom of God, but secondly, embrace the love and grace of God. Now, this is symbolic here. It may take you a second to see this. But when he tells him to go to the cave, he goes into the cave, and then he says, get up, for I'm about to come by. He, the picture we have is that Elijah stands, if you think about the mouth of the cave kind of there, Elijah stands aback, and that what we hear with the, the fire and the earthquake and the wind coming, that all of that happens while Elijah is still in the protection of the cave. And so God is passing by in those moments. And what is happening there, literally in the Old Testament, multiple times, God has been associated with a rushing wind. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, when the, when the Holy Spirit comes on the people at Pentecost, right? It says it was like what? A mighty rushing wind. Like a tornado is like the, the sound that it makes is what is here. And so it's like a tornado passed in front. And then the fire comes, just as God was seen as the fire by night for the children of Israel. The fire is there. As he saw in the fire consuming the altar, the fire comes by. But, but he is still standing in the cave. And then an earthquake throughout Scripture, when earthquakes came, they were attributed to the judgment of God. And so you have these three elements happening and God would have destroyed him in the wind and God would have destroyed him in the fire and God would have destroyed him in the earthquake. But he has left him in the protection of the cave and then he calls him out in that moment not to chastise him, not to yell at him, not to bring judgment on him for questioning God's wisdom. He brings him out in that moment and he whispers to him. Now let me ask you a question. How can you hear when somebody whispers to you? You've got to be close. The point of that moment is, as, <laughs> the moment of that moment is, Elijah, you're not alone. Elijah, I'm here. This is what we're going to do. One pastor says that the picture we have here, by the way, I don't know if you remember this or not, Elijah does show up in the New Testament, right? And I don't mean just like his name is mentioned in the New Testament. He shows up in the New Testament. Y'all remember where that was? The Mount of Transfiguration, right? Remember those three disciples go up on the mountain and Jesus is having a conversation with Elijah and Moses? That'd be a little freaky. What's interesting is there was somebody else that got sheltered in the cleft of the rock while God's holiness passed by. Who was that in the Old Testament? Moses. 
those two guys are probably having a conversation. Hey, man, I heard about, yeah, that was awesome. What about your experience? Now, they probably weren't chit-chatting like that on the Mount you know, of Transfiguration, but they're having conversations with Jesus. One pastor points out that what is happening here is that Elijah is being shown love and grace from God. He has been sheltered from the, work, from the wind and the fire and the earthquake. And that we have been sheltered not in the mouth of a cave, but, but in the person of Jesus who took the fury of God's wrath and the fire and the earthquake and the tornado for us. Believe in the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God. Thirdly, confront the lies in your self-narrative. You realize we talk to ourselves all the time. You just don't do it out loud or people think you're crazy, all right? Like you do it internally, right? And notice Elijah's answers to God's why are you here. They're all kind of conclusions that come. And, and in fact, he says basically, listen, I have been zealous for you. True. The people of God abandoned you. True. They broke down the altars. True. I'm the only one left. Not true. And a lot of times what happens in our self-narrative and our discussions with ourselves and our mental discussions with ourselves is we jump from one thing to another with no obvious connection between them. And we go from, man, this is a bad situation, this is a bad situation, this is, to I'm a terrible person who can never get better. Man, this is a hard thing and this is a hard thing. It will never improve and we are doomed for the rest of our lives. My son was supposed to call me at 10 o'clock. It is 9.59.59. He's been in a terrible accident somewhere. Right? The boss said he needed to see me at 9 a.m. in the morning. I'm fired. I don't have a job. We're going to lose the house. Like, you just jump to conclusions. Everything's lost. Nothing ever is going to change. I'll never be any good. I'm worthless. There's nothing I can ever do right. Nobody loves me. Nobody's with me. Nobody cares about me. And suddenly we begin to preach these things to ourselves. And that self-narrative becomes what the truth in our own life feels like, even though it's not truth. Jared Wilson is a guy that has talked about um, in some of his books, this concept of preaching the gospel to yourself. It didn't initiate with him, but on a daily basis, he says, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that because of that, we are never alone, that our future is not dim, that it will get better, that joy is coming, and that I am loved by God. And no matter what situation we find ourselves in, those truths can be lights in the darkness. We need to confront the lies that we tell ourselves as we look at our situation. And then here's the last thing, and it's the final thing, and we're going to use it to jump into next week, but we won't do that till next week. We've got to get back to work. Get back on purpose for God. That's what God basically says to him, right? God gives him time to rest, gives him time to recover. God's not cruel and like, no, don't get up now. Let's go. Come on. He's like, let's take some time. He took a 40-day journey, by the way, symbolic in Scripture, right, of prepare, preparation, getting ready. He, he eats. He's refreshed. He's sitting in the, in the cleft of the rock inside the cave watching all this. He comes out and God whispers to him. And God doesn't whisper and say, here's point number one about what you said, point number two. He doesn't argue with it. He just says, I need you to go. 
I need you to go to this king and this king and this prophet. I need you to do this. And this is what I'm setting right. All these things are going to be killed. You're part of the plan. Now get back to work. The worst thing that you can do when you experience a spiritual downturn is to quit doing what God's called you to do. It's easy sometimes to let life get in the way. and You know, it's different stages of your life, but your kids start to get older. They start to get involved in a bunch of stuff. It's just easy to kind of fade out and go from, you know what, I'm going to commit to the Lord three days a week to one day a week to one hour a week from three hours a week. Or I'm not going to, my, my quiet time just got pushed to the side today. Or my time with the Lord just got kind of, kind of detoured today. And that's okay. And then a day becomes a year, becomes a month. Comes a decade. And the kid's busyness at six is nothing compared to the kid's busyness at 12. The kid's busyness at 12 is nothing compared to 16. And so you just fall into that trap and things go. And then the kids leave and you don't know who you are anymore. And you don't have the purpose that God's put on your life. And you begin to search for that in lots of ways. You feel that in different places. And then you just put that into work. And then work ends and you don't really have purpose and what's going on. Because if you had been following the purposes of God all along in your life, doing what God had called you to do in the midst of your work, in the midst of your parenting, in the midst of your family, in the midst of all of that, when those things are taken away, the purpose that God has for you may change in direction, but it's still going. And you just get back to work doing what God's called you to do. We're going to see this next week. One of the greatest things he does is he literally commissions the person that's going to carry on his legacy. Charles Spurgeon says, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here, and I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and His infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. In the midst of that depression that he had after that stampede in his church, he came to that conclusion. I don't know if you're at the place where you're at a spiritual high or spiritual low. Maybe you're in between. You're in that process down or back up. But whatever it is, I would ask that you just trust in the wisdom of the Lord. You believe and receive the grace and mercy that He's given you. That you correct and speak to the lies that your own self-narrative is bringing up. And that you get back to work doing what God's called you to do. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And a couple of things are going to be happening. That one is, it is open as always for those of you that are here that maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and today is the day that you want to do that and you want to come. Talk to me about that. Talk to Noah about that. We'd love to have you come talk to us about that. Maybe you're here and you've got some things happening in your life and you just want somebody to pray with you about that. Both of us would love to do that. We'll be up here at the front. Maybe you just want to come and pray at the front. Just kneel right here. Make this an altar unto the Lord. You can do that. Maybe you're here and you not been baptized after salvation, you said, I'm ready to take that step, and you're ready to join the church, and you're ready for that step. Whatever it is, I'm going to ask you to respond however the Lord leads. The second thing is, it is Extravagant Giving Sunday, and I'm going to ask you to come. Those of you who are prepared to give, or maybe you didn't come prepared, but you can write a check right now, all right? Come and lay it at the altar. Over here on the wings on the sides, just come and place it there. We'll collect it after make sure it gets securely put up. But just place it there. Honor God with your gift.
I'm going to pray, and when I finish praying, the band's going to come, and we're going to sing. And as we sing, we're going to ask you to respond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that in our deepest, darkest moments, that your love shines through. We're thankful for the truth that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you are a God who loves us. That your wisdom is complete and true. And Lord, because of your work through your Son on the cross, we never have to worry ever again about our value, our worth to you. Pray, Lord, in this moment that you would just speak to hearts of people that need encouragement today, that you would give them the encouragement that they need, and, Lord, that in the midst of it all, that your name will be the name that is raised high because of the work that you do. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today that, Lord, they're at that place of despair, even thinking of destructive thoughts, Lord, that they would seek the help in you and in others that they need, in friends, in professionals, or that they would realize that, that their life has value because you have valued them. And that they would trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.